You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. Just a reminder, we're doing this series, Begin Anew. And we're talking about as we step into this new season, uh, just the seasons outside. Does anybody else wish it wasn't so cold? <laughs> I think to myself, if it, uh, if it would be this cold, why doesn't it just snow? But then we can't gather together as a church. And I had somebody in the first service say, every time it snows, I lose $10,000 a day in my business. And I'm like, oh, I just don't like it's cold. <laughs> but uh, this is a new season. It's a new year, and some of you have made new goals, and we serve a God who makes all things new, amen? And last week, and we were in this series, we were talking about why is it that it's a human inclination to always want new, that when we see a product, we see new, and we assume it is new and improved, whether it's laundry detergent or an iPhone, whether it's a car or a house, it's whatever it is, we assume newer is better, and Neuroscientists have actually learned that when we interact with something new, it engages a part of our brain that communicates pleasure and reward, releases dopamine into our bodies, which is pleasure and reward. And so all humans want new. The only problem with finding it in a product or relationship or job or is that all those things are temporary. And the longing in our heart is actually eternal. And as I was researching for this series, I found that people don't just want products. A lot of them want newness in their life. And some people do it by trying to change their identity. I won't ask you because I don't want to blow anybody's cover in case you're in the CIA. How many of you go by a name other than your birth name? Might be a nickname. Maybe you legally changed your name. But did you know that a lot of people do that? I read this week, uh, one gentleman was talking online, sharing his story. Uh, He's a college student. And so maybe you can relate, those of you who are past college, those of you who aren't quite there yet, and mom and dad are still paying for everything, things change. <laughs> it's a rude awakening. Your budget may be different. Ramen noodles may become regular, not just a fun little trendy thing to do. And this gentleman, now named Adam West, changed his name because somebody booked a ticket for him under the name Adam West, and that wasn't his name. His legal name was Adam Armstrong, and he found out that to change the ticket would cost him $337, but to legally change his name was only $157. So he legally changed his name to Adam West. His name's Adam Armstrong originally, if you want to look it up. There was another gentleman, his name is Sam Smith. There are a lot of Sam Smiths in the world, and he got tired of having such a common name, and so he changed it to, I'm not making this up, I tell my kids all the time. True stories are even better than fiction because you couldn't make this up. He changed his name to Bacon Double Cheeseburger. (laughs) His parents thought it was funny. His friends thought it was funny. His fiance, however, does not think it's funny, which he said in an interview, I can understand no girl dreams of standing at the altar with a man named Bacon. Kisses are tasty. I've heard. I've heard. I don't say that, but... um, There are different reasons for different folks. Some celebrities change their names. Did you know that Whoopi Goldberg's first name is not Whoopi? <laughs> it was Karen. I don't make this up. I didn't make that up. All right? That uh, Brad Pitt's first name is actually William. That Lady Gaga, I don't know what her original name was, but it's not Lady. All right? Rapper 50 Cent, Curtis Jackson, he said that he wanted 50 Cent as his nickname because he wanted it to be a metaphor for change. <laughs> hmm. I think as a pastor, I'm going to change my name to Nickel instead of Scott. You guys start calling me Nickel. Change. We want to see change. Connect people to Jesus for life. Change. See? Get it? Get it? Anyway. Dreckles. Maybe we'll do some shekels. Oh, Jesus. Stuff. Nerdy Bible jokes. Um, 
I want to play a game with you as we get started. I'm going to put up some celebrities' birth names, and I want to see if you know who it is that we more commonly know them as. And so we'll start off. We've got uh, Nicholas Kim Coppola. Boom, somebody got it. You don't ruin it for everybody else. Work with each other. Yeah, his uncle, Francis Ford Coppola, got him into the business, and he didn't want his uncle to be accused of nepotism, so he changed it to Nicholas and one of his favorite Marvel characters' names. Here's another one, longer one. Margaret, Mary, Emily, Anne, Hira. Talk amongst yourselves. Think about this. What do you got? That's not Lady Gaga, just in case you're wondering. And the answer is Meg Ryan. Shortened it quite a bit. How about this one? This one, if you know this right away, um, you'll think, we'll know when you were born. We'll just say that. Remember Van Winkle? Okay. Collaborate. Listen. Sa, hold up. You get it? Is Vanilla Ice. There you go. A couple of you will get that previous joke halfway through the sermon. At any rate, um, I think we've got one more here. Thomas Mapator IV. Tom Cruise, somebody said in the front row, they got it right. And it wasn't just to have a catchier name. His dad is actually, uh, as you could probably guess, Thomas Mepitor III, also an actor. In a rare moment of transparency, however, Tom Cruise one time shared the reason he changed his name was to distance himself from his father because his father was abusive. He called him a creator of chaos, a manipulator of people who would lull you into trusting him before he'd bully you, that he would bully verbally and physically abuse his kids and kick them, and so he wanted a new identity not associated with that. If you could change your name, what would you change it to? We see in the Bible that oftentimes when God changes somebody's life, he changes their name. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. In the New Testament, Simon becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. And so what would you change your name to? And maybe you've read some of those stories. Have you read the verse where it says that your name will be changed? It's in Revelation when you're not looking for dragons and figuring out which country. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17, it says this, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some hidden manna. That's talking about Jesus. I want to unpack all of that right now because it's not our passage today, but I'll also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Huh. Well, later in the message, I'll tell you what I think that stone is and what it means. But why would someone do that? It's just that the one who is victorious, who overcomes. We all have struggles. We all have battles. We all have difficulty. I've titled today's message, Finding New Freedom. Jesus wants you free. Free to be who he's created you to be. Not free to be like me, not free to be like somebody else, but free from sin, free from the things that hold us down, free from all the stuff that entangles us, free from the weights of past hurts and hang-ups and difficulties. He wants you free. And so we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. How many of you here are using a paper Bible this morning? It's not a judgment of who's better and who's worse and who's younger and who's older, but okay, anybody got a scroll? I see, all right, got that. Um, just curious, because when you turn there in your Bibles, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, what you'll find is, a lot of times there's a little bracket if you've got ESV, and I think RSV, and um, maybe the NIV has it as well, or it's in italics, and some of your translations it says, this story is not in the oldest manuscripts, which you might ask yourself, well, why isn't it, my, should it even be in the Bible? Is this really God's Word? Here's the, I don't want to get into the, too much of the nitty-gritty of this, but if you have more questions, we can talk after the service. 
Uh, there are certain people, their job is they're called textual critics, which I, I would hate that title, but they're really smart people that look at old manuscripts, and in the New Testament, Greek manuscripts, and in the oldest ones, this story is not there. And in some manuscripts, it's at the end of the book of John, and so they debate this. And so the translators are just letting you know that. Almost all scholars agree this is an actual historic event in the life of Jesus, and it reveals the character of Jesus. The debate is, is it in the original manuscripts, which we don't have? I think because we'd worship them if we had them. But what we do is we take all these manuscripts we have, and it is in the majority of manuscripts from multiple different languages, and it's in my Bible, so I'm going to share it with you today. Is that all right? If you want to know more about some of that, we can, but here's what I want you to know. The setting is the Feast of Tabernacles. That is a time, it's one of three feasts, when Jewish men were commanded by God to travel, no matter where they're living, to Jerusalem and the reason why it's called tabernacles, those are tents, temporary dwellings. They would set up these tents and they would celebrate God's provision. And so thousands and thousands of people have gathered to this place. Some people think that Jesus was born during the Feast of Tabernacles, which isn't in December, by the way, for those of you who were here last week. So even Jesus would change his birth date if it was in December because he got to decide, right? And so he's around this time. He's just born and there's all kinds of people that are here. And Jesus is teaching, it says in the text, he's sitting because that's what a rabbi would do to teach. He's sitting with his legs crossed, communicating to people that probably are as close as they can get to him because he doesn't have a microphone. He's at a peak of popularity, but some religious people really hate him, and so they want to put him on trial. That's what this passage is actually about. Skeptics, they think they have God cornered with their questioning. And in the midst of that, a sexual scandal. A naked woman is drug in, and this is one of the reasons why I give you an opportunity for your kids to leave, and you can still do it if you want to, but I'm going to read it to you. Know the situation. People are celebrating. It's exciting. They want to hear Jesus teach, and they try to trap him, but he puts everybody else on trial and then shows them a path to freedom. John chapter 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple. So he's in the temple, in the courts, where thousands upon thousands, there's so many people here, all of the tribes, all of the tribes that... Uh, of Levi, the, the 24 different segments of priests, they all have to work as much as possible this time for all the sacrifices that are being done because there's so many people here. Jesus in the temple courts, he's not hiding. Where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman. So the teachers of the law are the scholars, they're the people that would make comments on the Bible. And the Pharisees, they're actually businessmen that are oftentimes known for their religious beliefs, but they're not following Jesus. They brought in a woman who was caught. Have you ever been caught doing something? It's different than confessing. Was caught in adultery. They made her, she didn't volunteer for this, stand before the group. Notice no one ever questions her. Who's on trial? There's two sides. The Proverbs tells us every story sounds right until there's a cross-examination. They made her stand, so here's this woman naked standing before a group of men and in a crowd she doesn't know, and stand before the group, verse 4, and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. The law is the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, what do you say? Do you contradict the law, Jesus? They think they have him trapped because if he says not to stone her, then he doesn't, he's not taking the law as a big deal. 
But if he says to stone her, Jews can't stone people, which we find out when they go to crucify Jesus, and they need the Romans to do that. The Romans actually have the authority over, of death. So they think they have him trapped. Either the Jews will all stop listening to him, or the Romans will kill him. <laughs> they were using this question, John tells us, as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus, oh, those are great words. <laughs> This isn't what I would have done. What would you have done? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up. So how long was he down there? And he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. The law states that the person who's supposed to be first to throw a stone is the one who brought the accusation. The one who brought the accusation had to be an eyewitness, and there had to be at least two let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. <laughs> I'd have probably been like, see how I did that? Like instead he stoops down. What's he writing? Why is he stooping? He was sitting originally. He must have stood up. Can we enter into this passage? And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first. Well, that's interesting. Until only Jesus was left the only one who was without sin, the only one who had the authority to condemn her. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, or some of your translations, no one, Lord, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now think about this passage. There's a lot of emotions here. Anger of these men trying to trap Jesus, there's deception, fear from this woman. The law does say she should be killed. Questioning, where's the man? Because the law actually says both of them are supposed to be stoned. If I was Jesus, I'd be angry that they're objectifying one of my children this way. No name. Being used like so many women have been in our society, not just this one. This is an image bearer of mine. How dare you treat one of my children this way? He's gracious to all of them, not just the woman. Think about everybody that's there and all the emotions that happen. The shock. If I were teaching today and I sat down and we're all listening and somebody barges in with a naked woman, you'll never forget. Might not remember what I say. Jesus was teaching. Notice it doesn't even write down what he said. Happens a lot, doesn't it? You have a coach that really impacted your life or a pastor, a youth pastor, and you go, I don't remember any of the lessons, but here's what God did for the crowd. There's a lot of emotions in this passage, but they're trying to trap Jesus, verse 7. And instead, what Jesus does is he sets everyone free. They all drop a stone and leave. And then he tells her, leave your life of sin, because here's what, Jesus came so that you could have freedom, Amen. There's two different ways that people would uh, stone people in the Bible. One is that you'd throw stones at them until they die, like Achan in the Old Testament that you'll see. Think about what a gruesome death that is. It's not like you die as soon as you get hit with a stone. Broken bones, torn off flesh, everybody's throwing stones. It's a lesson for the whole community. Don't do that. Another way is that you'd throw someone off of a cliff and they would die hitting the stones. We call that stoning. They tried to do that to Jesus when he preached his first sermon in his hometown synagogue and Luke chapter 4. Now, I think to myself, as a preacher, what's the worst thing that could happen as I'm preaching? <laughs> right? I'm like, 
I don't know if you ever had this dream about like homework in school or whatever. Like, I'm small, I have a dream where I like, get up here and I'm in my underwear. All right, not today. That's good. It's underprepared. You're not ready. Like, you just forget what you're going to say. Okay, that's worst case scenario. Oh, well, see you next week. We'll do it again. But that they would try to kill him? Here's what he preached when they tried to kill him. Luke chapter 4, he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah. It says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the, the Lord, he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Well, that's offensive. <laughs> he sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Only the Messiah can do that. He's calling himself the Messiah. And recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. And that's what Jesus does. That's why he came. Earlier in John, in John chapter 3 and verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen? Later in John chapter 8, he's going to confront the Pharisees again, and he's going to tell them that you actually live your life led by lies from your father, Satan, who is a liar and speaks his native tongue of deception. He says this right before it, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you Oh, he wants to, so he equates being a disciple to being free. I've titled today's message, Finding New Freedom. It's in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How? I think he gives us the pathway in this passage. And that's what we're going to talk about. First thing is this, you've got to diagnose what's holding you back. So is there anybody here that's all in with Jesus? Not just by idea, not just in your thoughts. Well, like your whole life is submitted under his will and you're following him and there's nothing holding you back. If so, that's awesome. We want to hear testimony from you so that we can be more like that. The rest of us, however, there are things. And I don't know what those are for you, but you need to diagnose those things. We're going to be baptizing today. The baptismal's open. It was a great celebration in the first service, younger, older, different types of folks, different stories, but they're all declaring, I'm dying to my old way of life, and I want to live a new way of life. That's Romans 6. Every person that goes under the water, death to the old, resurrection life to the new. What you see with the woman in this passage, when Jesus says to her, Go, leave your life of sin. That's resurrection life. Old life gone, you got a chance for a new life, lady. We don't know what she does because there's an invitation to us. I heard one pastor, I think it was Alistair Bagg, it was the first one I heard say this. It was telling him a story about how a lot of soldiers, when they would, a long time ago, would get baptized. They would get baptized, but they'd leave their sword out of the water to communicate. I'm giving my whole life, but I don't want to be held accountable for what I'm going to do with this. And then I think it was Beg that said, a lot of people when they get baptized should hold their wallets out of the water. <laughs> and maybe for you it's something else, your time, your anger, your illness, your, what is it for you? Fear, depression, secret sin. If you can identify that, then you're diagnosing what's holding you back. In our passage, and you can go back and glance at it. For the sake of time, I won't read it a hundred times to you. But if you look, and it says that Jesus wrote in the sand with his finger. We don't know what he wrote, but to me, when I look at it, and I step back, and I think about the, the different folks that are involved in this passage. Like, just think about the characters. So you've got Jesus, obviously. He's the one without sin. They're trying to put him on trial. But he's so wise, 
Get this, skeptics, by the way, some of you think that you have God figured out and you, you know, you can, no one can talk you into believing in him because you think God can't be good or else bad stuff wouldn't happen. And if he is good and bad stuff happens, that means he's powerless. And you're like, now I got him trapped. Well, these guys are coming and they're going, well, if he says not to kill her, then well, he doesn't believe the law and nobody needs to listen to him teach. But if he says to kill her, then we've got him trapped. Listen, the grave couldn't contain Jesus, Amen. So our crafty words aren't going to trap him. And when we try to trap him, he just sets more people free. And there's this woman, pretty clear, some of the weight that she's carrying, shame, embarrassment, fear. What about the crowd? There was a crowd that was already gathered, listening to Jesus, probably like a lot of people that listen to sermons on a weekly basis, passive spectators, going through the motion in life, not committed to him. We'll find out that most of the crowds that came to hear Jesus were not committed to him. And when things got difficult, even when he said difficult things, they would leave. We don't know their names. We don't know their faces. They're what my kids would call NPCs, non-playable characters, the video game analogy. They're kind of background people, but they're there. Did they pick up stones? The Pharisees, the Pharisees are not religious leaders, actually. They're businessmen, mostly middle-class businessmen, fairly wealthy uh, in comparison to the majority of people. However, not the wealthiest, not the elite, but they had a lot of political pull. And if Jesus is right, they have a lot to lose. A lot of changes need to take place in their life. But their stuff all seems to be tied to the Bible. In fact, they were so diligent and being so sinless. It's why Jesus, when he's preaching, says, if any of you is going to make it to heaven, your, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. I mean, these are guys that, that I've heard what they would do is if they're walking down the road and there's a woman coming out and they go to the other side of the road not to come into contact with this woman, but somehow two of them at least were eyewitnesses to a very secret act. Jesus stoops down and writes in the sand. You know what I'd identify with Jesus? The audacity of your hypocrisy. They confronted him. He doesn't do that. Interesting. The scribes or the teachers of the law, they're the ones who would criticize the text. They're the ones who would comment and write all the scholarly things that we should all, the rest of us, adhere to. People knew their authority and they knew the power of the Pharisees and there were people in the crowd and there was the woman and Jesus writes something in the sand that I read like a diagnosis from a doctor writing a prescription to a problem. How would you diagnose what's holding you back? And maybe you're wrong. One of the reasons why it's beneficial to have other people in your life, the ones that care enough about you to speak the truth even if it costs you the relationship. Hebrews talks a lot about that. We talk about living as family, as a church. I hope you have some of those people you can talk about this passage even with. Because misdiagnosis is dangerous. I thought by reading some scholarly articles I could find out some new insights. Most of them spend a bunch of money and a bunch of time studying people, and it's just common sense. <laughs> you can't solve a problem unless you know what the problem is, is the summary of what they said, because you've got to go to the source of the problem. Some of the analogies I read from one study was, it's like if you keep getting rain in your living room, but you keep sending out buckets and trying to figure out how to get water out of your living room, but there's a hole in the roof, and you never deal with the hole. Okay had that in lots of different areas of my life. Or if you go to the doctor and you've got this terrible cough and they give you cough syrup, which alleviates some symptoms, but you've got pneumonia. 
doesn't deal with the actual problem. That's what a lot of us do in our spiritual lives. That's what the Pharisees were notorious for doing. If you've got a problem with pornography, you can set up filters on your computer and have accountability partners, but why is your heart so lustful? What are you trying to fill? What do you think you're going to find? If you've got a problem with anger, what pain are you trying to shield everyone from getting to? What hurt have you not? dealt with. Gossip, and you just keep going through the list of all the different sins and go, if we don't get to the source. See, the the problem in much of Christianity with this is that we deal with symptoms, and the symptoms are temporary, and so the relief is only temporary. And the healing is then fake, and we're stuck in this cycle, but if we get to the source of the problem then the healing could be real. The relief could be eternal. And freedom could be found. That's what Jesus wants for you. And here there are these folks, and they all have something. I bet the Pharisees, when they came, thought they didn't have anything to deal with. They're holding the stones. I brought some stones so you can see. You don't just picture some little pebble there. They're going to kill someone with these stones. These are big stones. I'm going to throw them out there. Bad for the insurance, right? But they drop a stone. Change is possible. Diagnosis needs to be accurate. Misdiagnosis is dangerous. Uh, We could pick on that in the medical industry. It happens. I want to be gracious to our doctors because they're doing the best they can. Gracious and just knowing that you're in the system and with the information you know you're doing what you can do. No one signs up to be a doctor because they want to hurt. Most people don't sign up because they want to hurt people. But this in 2023, they attribute 800,000 deaths to misdiagnosis. Read of one woman who was diagnosed and given a second opinion that she had breast cancer, had a vasectomy, double mastectomy, and then found out later, nope, mistake in the lab. You don't have cancer at all. Oops. Go to the criminal system. You hear about people being falsely accused and imprisoned. I read about one guy, Kirk Bloodsworth, if you want to look him up, spent nine years in jail for a crime he didn't commit. He was accused of murder and assaulting a woman, and there were five eyewitnesses. So they saw him with her right before the crime took place. Two of them later recanted and said, no, we saw him on TV, but we knew that he was guilty, so we said that. Two of them couldn't even identify him in a lineup, but it's not how memory works, by the way. It's on a videotape. He was, he was arrested. He was put in jail. He was sentenced to death. And then later it was changed to a double life sentence, and then... Seven years into him serving his double life sentence, he heard about a guy in the UK who was convicted of a crime because of DNA evidence, and he knew that he was innocent, and he maintained his innocence, and so he pled to his attorney to try and find out if there's any DNA evidence. They thought they threw it all away. They found it in a paper bag in the judge's chambers seven years later, and the DNA exonerated him and actually pointed to a different man who had been arrested a month later for attempting another murder and actually was in the same prison as Bloodsworth, one floor beneath him. They would work out together when they lifted weights. They saw each other. They didn't really know each other. And that man then later confessed to the crime as well. But nine years? Misdiagnosis is dangerous. So what's holding you back? Jesus challenges each one of these people. That's the beginning of the path to freedom, to diagnose what's holding them back. 
And they all have sin. They all drop a stone. The next point and the next part of this passage is you've got to acknowledge that change is possible. And we know that that's true from Jesus telling this woman to go leave her life of sin. It doesn't mean that she'll never sin again, but there's a new kind of life that she can walk in that's not led just by her impulses. It's not led by her pain, not led by her hurt, not led by sin, but it's led by him. The truth, he says later in chapter 8, will set you free. And Jesus in John 14, 6 says, I am the truth. It's led by him. The very fact that each one of these people drops a stone doesn't tell us what they do and whether they deal with the sin, but they change is possible. And so you may grab your Bibles and, and look at this as I walk you back through the passage, but I want you to imagine being there that day, and you can pick different characters, but like a show, I want to back up and say, what happened two hours prior? Because we're joining this passage in, in John chapter 8, right in the climax you know, Jesus is sitting. He would have had his legs folded, which is, it means Jesus was in good shape. I don't want to sit like this for a long time. I'm going to sit like this. But, you know, he's sitting there teaching. But before that, what happened? Who is this woman? She's not named, so I don't know who she is. But when I read the passages that are behind this passage, when you study the Bible, that's one of the things you do. You try to put the pieces together. And so I go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22 and, and read about who's supposed to be stoned for adultery. Oh, it's both. It's not just the woman. Where's the man? Oh, and you're put to death for adultery, but it doesn't say you have to be stoned for adultery. It only says that you have to be stoned if you're engaged and you have sex outside of marriage. And so some of us may have automatically thought this woman must be, you know, a prostitute or just a woman that goes from man to man. I, this might be a one-time thing with somebody she plans to marry, and no one asked her a question. She didn't say, well, we're going to get married, but we just, we couldn't wait, and there was this passion, and we don't know her story, but when I start to put the pieces together, she's a lot less wicked than you may automatically assume. And it seems to me, I don't know this either, it seems this is a premeditated setup. Because the act that they're doing is pretty private, pretty intimate. And there must be two or more witnesses, eyewitnesses. You can't just accuse somebody based on he said, she said, or I think, or the, the fiancé told me that they did that. No, you have to see it. That was the legal system. And if you were wrong, the judgment that would come on the person that you're accusing now comes on you. Oh, that changes how I read, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Because if I'm wrong, all these people are going to turn and throw these rocks at me. And the Pharisees are the ones who saw it, really? Guys who intentionally go out of their way not to look at a woman, sat there until the very act was engaged in? And so Jesus is now teaching. No microphone. People are as close as they can get. You can still come from the back to the front. I see you, my friends, in the back. I see you. Um, we don't know what he said. But everybody wants to hear it. And from the back, and no, I don't have anything planned. So if anybody can barge in, that's real. <laughs> they come, come barging in, and apparently Jesus stood up because later he stoops. And so he goes from sitting that when they come in with this woman who's naked, or maybe she grabs some clothes, she's half naked, she gets torn from a, a moment of kissing to now a moment of condemnation. Think about what she's feeling. From intimacy to humiliation. From vulnerability to exposing herself before a bunch of men, religious men, 
putting her on trial, but never asking her her story, not even naming her, but fear, because she may be killed. They're holding stones. Maybe some of the crowd begins to pick up the stones, because that's what the truth says. Truth without grace is dangerous. Grace without truth is negligent. Jesus stands up. John tells us Jesus would know this. They're trying to trap him. What would you do if you were Jesus? Psychologists tell us that in a moment of stress, and this is clearly a moment of stress, that we are predisposed in our personalities to either fight or flight. You probably know what yours is. And maybe you know what your spouse's is, or maybe you know what your friend's inclination is. What would you do if you were Jesus? I think if I were Jesus, I would say, the audacity of your hypocrisy to bring this woman in here like this. Come here, put some clothes on. This is my child. And then some people, when they speculate what Jesus wrote in the sand, say that Jesus, knowing everything, being omniscient God, wrote their names and their sins. That's probably what I would have done. I don't think that's what Jesus did. I have one friend who is a psychologist. He's writing a book, and he let me read the manuscript. It hasn't been published yet, or else I'd sell it for him. Uh, he says, Jesus doesn't do fight or flight. Some of you, in front of that moment, you go, I just want to get out of here. They're trying to trap me. I can feel it. I'm not sure which is the right answer. Oh. They say to Jesus, in the law, I'd have probably said, yeah, I know. I wrote it. Jesus doesn't fight or flight. He remains present. We know he had to stand back up because he stoops. Oh, you can't stoop if you're already seated. You are seated at the beginning of the passage. It says he stoops down and he writes, and then people keep speculating about what did he write. We don't know. The passage doesn't tell us. The same as we don't know the woman's name and her exact situation. But we can deduce, and people have tried. There are different theories. Some people say that he's averting his eyes because he doesn't, doesn't want to look at this naked woman. I think he'd have looked her right in the eyes if that was the issue. I don't think that's the reason. Some people say he's doodling. Buying time. Did you know Jesus was a doodler? <laughs> yes, I'm bored with this. You know. Some of you now feel guilty about your doodling. You're like, oh, I wasn't doodling. Was he looking behind me? He's writing notes on another passage. My wife gets after me when I do that when somebody else is preaching. Pastor Dave will be preaching. He'll be preaching from John. I'll be in Matthew. She's like, stop doing that. I'm like, he said something. Now I'm thinking of Matthew. What? It's, not, it's the Bible. All right. No judgment for me. The Lord will do what he wants to do. What's he, what's he writing? One theory is that he writes uh, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13. And in that passage, this is why people say it. It says this, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Jesus is writing in the dust. Because they've forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. <laughs> the most compelling and I believe probably accurate, but we don't know. Answer, I heard, I've only heard one pastor. I've not read any scholars that have said this, so I don't know how he came to this, but I'm going to give him credit. It's in the Bible. It's not like trademarked. I don't get in trouble if I don't say this, but Tony Evans, one of my favorite preachers, when he was preaching this passage, he goes, we don't know what Jesus wrote, but let me read you this verse. And he reads this verse from Exodus 31 and verse 18. It's when God writes the law on stone tablets, and he gives it to Moses. It says in Exodus 31, 18, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant of the law, 
the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. John tells us in John chapter 1 who Jesus is, that Jesus is God, and that Jesus was there before the beginning of the world. And what is he writing with in the sand? His finger. Interesting, it's kind of like how we don't have the original, original copies of the Scripture. We don't have the original tablets either. Do you know why? Because what happens, if you're familiar with Exodus chapter 31, you might know Exodus 32. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses starts coming down from the mountain to show, look at what God wrote. He wrote it for all of us. And the people are already committing idolatry. They're worshiping a golden calf. And Moses, wired more like me than like God, he gets angry and he throws the tablets down. And they're broken. No, only Moses got to read them. Next is chapter 33. God's going to destroy the people. Moses appeals to God's character. God says, all right, but I'm not going with you. You go to the promised land. God was always going. He's acting so that Moses understands and knows how to better lead the people. And Moses says, if you don't go, nothing will set us apart. You have to come with us. And God says, I'll go with you. And then Moses says, show me your glory. And in Exodus 33, 19, it's pretty significant. God says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. Then in Exodus chapter 34, he's going to write on the tablets again. We're going to give you a God of second chances. He's going to give you a second copy of the law. Look what he says. Exodus chapter 34, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I'll write on them again. It's kind of like his parents, right? I already told you this. I'm going to tell you again. And he tells Moses, you broke the tablets. Let's be clear about accountability here, Moses. It wasn't them. And then before he writes on the tablets, listen to what the Lord does. Then the Lord, we'll jump down to verse 5. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. The he told him, I'm going to let all my goodness pass in front of you. Before I even read the next part of the verse, what does it mean when we say God is good? Because there's a, even a chant, if you've been going to church very long, God is good. And all the time, well, what does that mean? When I go home after a day and my wife says, how did it go? And I go, good. I mean, it wasn't great. It wasn't that bad. Kind of mid, meh. Is that what we mean? God is meh all the time. All the time, kind of mid. Is that, what, is that what we mean? And notice we're saying that it is his being. It's not just what he does. He gives good gifts. He does good things. But everything God does is good because he is good. What is his goodness? Well, he said in Exodus 33, he's going to cause his goodness to pass before Moses. Then what passes before Moses? Look at the next part of the verse. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. It's all of his character. And so when God gives you what you don't deserve, his mercy, that's his goodness. When he doesn't give you what you deserve, his grace, that's his goodness. When he's patient, it's goodness. He's loving goodness. God is good. So skeptic, when you say you can't be good and maybe his goodness supersedes your knowledge of goodness and you can judge him, but one day you're going to stand before him and it's not going to be about you judging him. 
I think when he wrote in the sand, he's writing the character of who he is, and then maybe he does list the Ten Commandments. Maybe he writes out the law. That's what happens after. Before he writes, though, compassionate, so he's got rules, and he says, and I will not let sin go unaccounted for. He's just. If he wasn't just, we couldn't trust him. What he says, he means. But patient and compassionate. Don't remember the context in which the rules are given and who it is that's giving them. So then he says, he who's without sin cast the first stone. And then the text is so interesting. It says then, they dropped their stone one at a time. Verse 9 is the, in the imperative in Greek, and that's a repeated action that continuously is happening. So it's one stone, then another stone, then another stone. They just keep, can you imagine if you're that woman? I'm sure you're hiding your face in shame by your hair, and you start hearing these stones drop. And what are these people doing? They're letting go of their self-righteousness, their judgmentalism at least. And they're probably reflecting on their own sins, and some of that is letting go of their own sins. What's holding you back? See, if you don't do that, it's not just dangerous to misdiagnose, it's dangerous to hang on to that weight. I put a bunch of these stones in a bag to bring it here today, and I brought the bag up here because when I picked it up uh, to come to church, I was like, whoa, like that's legit heavy. Like, I'm not acting if I'm like, well, that's hard to carry around. It reminded me of a story Sorry, I told 17 years ago to our church because I wanted our church to be a culture of grace and truth. And I wanted people to be free. And I'll be really candid with you this morning. I don't remember most of the stories I've ever told. And so if you come to me one Sunday and you're like, remember that one time you told a story? I'll just smile. Try not to lie. Huh? And if you don't remember something I said last week, don't feel bad, neither do I. <clears throat> but I remember this one. A woman's name is Rebecca Thompson. She's a woman who died twice. What happened in Rebecca's life is when she was 18 years old, her sister Amy is 11. They were abducted by some thugs in their town. And these guys um, threw them in a truck and drove them out into the woods and assaulted them. Some of the reasons why I wanted your kids to leave the room. They raped the oldest, Rebecca. And she pled, don't do that to my sister, who's 11, Amy. They didn't. But when they were done... They threw Amy over the bridge, and she died. Fremont Canyon Bridge, 112 feet in the air. And then they threw Rebecca over. But she didn't die physically. She ricocheted off some different rocks, fell in the water. When the sun came up the next morning, she became conscious. She was found. The doctors healed her physical wounds, not the internal ones, though. It's dangerous just to deal with the symptoms dangerous just to deal with the external. Her friends who talk about her life talk about her smile, how funny she is, how winsome she can be. She's clearly a guardian and she's protecting someone else in a moment of difficulty and tragedy, a fighter. Nineteen years later, she was driving across that same bridge with her boyfriend, their two-year-old child in the back seat. She pulled the car off the side of the road and got out and just started bawling. Her boyfriend got out with her and she started to retell the story and what happened that day and details he had never heard before. And she's crying so much, they left the car doors open and he decided he didn't want the two-year-old to see that. And he went to the car to stop the baby from seeing this and then he heard 
Rebecca hit the water. This time she died physically. But even the newspaper article Associated Press put out, 2007, said this woman died 19 years before. She was just living on the outside. Unfortunately, that's true for many people. What happens is when you don't deal with these things is it's like you just keep going around and putting more in the bag. It gets heavier and heavier. So you just can't do it anymore. Doesn't matter what your smile's like. Pharisees. Doesn't matter if most people don't even notice you, like the crowd. You can do it for a little bit. And maybe on some days when you come in front of everybody, but eventually it's just too much. So Jesus, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Do you even know what it is that's weighing you down? I will give you rest. Now you can try. Hey, filters on your computer and accountability and I'm, not, I'm just going to white knuckle it and do it in my own strength and I'm just going to do a bunch, get really busy and maybe that'll alleviate the guilt. Won't work. Cough syrup for pneumonia. It's a bucket in your living room and there's a hole in the roof. You want real relief? The one who is truth. His invitation to the woman, go leave your life of sin is an invitation to a new way of life. It's a way where she's walking in the truth doesn't mean she'll never sin again. We know that's not true. Just read the whole New Testament. Even guys who write it, like Paul. Well, I, I still sin. I don't want to sin, but there's a battle. He's trying to walk in the truth. It's like a GPS uh, when you're guided by God. You ever, you ever get off track from your GPS? Anybody here? Sometimes I actually think to myself, I'm smarter than my GPS. It'll tell me where to go. I'm like, no, that's not the way. That doesn't usually work. Or just miss a turn. I'm like, 600 feet? That's not 600 feet. That's right there, you know. I'm so thankful my GPS doesn't say, hey, moron, turn around. This is what I would do if I were the GPS. To me. Instead of rerouting. Now, it might take longer. There might be some more obstacles. I'm going to get you back to the truth. That's what it's like walking with Jesus, who is the truth. We walk with him. That's where freedom is found. And freedom will set you free through truth. Unfortunately, some of you here believe lies. And no matter what I say next, you'll keep thinking those lies. And so I wrote some of them down. The confrontation later in this passage, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and say that they believe lies, and he's talking about their own self-righteousness. Here's some that I wrote down. This might be yours, might not be. That you're not good enough. That you've got to earn God's love. That how you're loved by God is shown by how someone else, maybe you've picked a person, responds to you. That you can't change. That God doesn't care about your day-to-day life, just your eternity. Or that it's all up to you. That other people's lives are better than yours. That if you just change your job, spouse, car, clothes. That your value comes from your productivity. That you're defined by your past. That if it feels right, it must be right. That faith means you can't have doubts or questions. There's a long list of things that we doubt. There are a lot of lies that you might be prone to believe and you have an enemy who knows your proclivities, your tendencies, and he wants to destroy you and Jesus says, it's the truth will set you free. You're in a battle, not against flesh and blood. There's one weapon, it's truth. The truth is he doesn't love anybody in this room more than he loves somebody else. 
The truth is, it's not based on who you are. It's based on who he is. It's not based on what you've done. We talk about his goodness. Is God too good to be true? Yeah. Uh, from human terms. But he's God. And he wants you to be free. Let's pray. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I'm going to give you an invitation right now as you sit in your seat. You don't have to come forward. You can. We'll have some people off to the sides when we're done praying. Some women, for those of you who may not want to talk to a man. Some men, for those of you who might not want to talk to a woman. Pastors, elders, trusted people. This is who's standing against the walls. And while we're celebrating baptism and while we're singing a song, if you want to go talk to them, you can. Or if you're online, you can just message. You'd like to talk to a pastor. Just put pastor in the comments. But I'm going to pray. Father, I come before you and there are people here who need to forgive someone else. There are people here who need to experience forgiveness. There are people who feel condemned. There's no condemnation if they're in you. I pray that they would be in you. And that just means acknowledging their sin, their need for a Savior, and asking you to be their Savior. If that's you, will you do that right now? Online, in person. Ask Jesus to be your Savior. If he is your Savior, maybe you've walked away for a period of time. It's time to put the stake in the ground again and say, I'm back. I'm going to get back in the path of truth rerouting, I'm coming. Like the prodigal, I'm coming home. And the Father will meet you with his love. He is passionate for you and compassionate about whatever it is that's hurting you and slow to anger about the sins that you've done and waiting for you to turn. Some of you are carrying wounds of things other people have done to you, things you've believed about yourself because of something someone said to you, maybe words they don't even remember that have wounded you. God, I pray for healing today. This woman hurt by people that are religious leaders. Some of you have been hurt by the church, maybe even by this church. I pray for healing. I pray for God's grace in both, whether it's from for the people that did the hurting or for the people that have been hurt. I pray for restoration. Somebody like Kurt Bloodsworth, who's lost a portion of his life, and maybe some of you have been like so many years, have been gone. A passage in Joel, the years that locusts have eaten away, I pray that the new years will be greater than anything that's been lost. The path of freedom, the path of truth, the healing balm of the truth of the scriptures, that the Holy Spirit would move up and down these aisles into hearts, into lives, and heal, renew minds with truth, renew hearts with passion, renew wounds with healing. There may be scars as a reminder I have it be a reminder of your freedom and the truth and what once was, not what currently is. Make us new. We need you to do that. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.